This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Ideas Festival, April 29th to May 6th, online and in Seattle. Some of the stump photos that I find the most fascinating are ones where, you know, they put 20 or 30 or 40 people on a stump. And you see this crowd of young men, boys, women, you know, just packed onto a stump. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. And of course, Mossback's Northwest is a fascinating look at the history of the most interesting place on Earth, and it is hosted by Knut Berger. Today, we're going to talk about tree stumps. If you haven't seen the video on tree stumps, when stumps went viral, Take a moment right now and go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. And we'll see you back here in a moment. Known for its forests, the Northwest had appeal for its moderate climate and fertile lands. Indigenous people had been cultivating crops and game with periodic burnings to promote the growth of berries, camas root, and oak prairies. When settlers poured into the region, they were dazzled by the forests, which they fell upon to chop down, to build with, and for lumber to sell. The Pacific Northwest has had many beautiful symbols. Salmon, the orca, our iconic mountains, even Sasquatch. But Canute, now you've found a new one, tree stumps. Why? <laughs> uh, why trees? Well, you know, tree stumps are one of those things that uh, we take for granted today. You might, but they see, get in everybody's way. They get in everybody's way, and they and they did throughout the settlement period. Stumps were a really big deal. I got interested in them because, uh, well, as a kid, I remember, you know, going on hikes and seeing these big old tree stumps with notches cut into them. And my father, who had been a logger at one point, you know, explaining how they put the springboards in those notches so they could get high enough to be able to cut the tree down. Because the saws, the trees were so enormous, a size that we can't even comprehend today, that the saws were not big enough to cut at the base, right? Yeah, that's right. The bases were two. You know, you have something that was maybe 19 or 20 feet in diameter, and that's awful difficult to cut down with a with a single saw. And so they used a lot of different techniques. But it, it takes us back to the period of settlement where not just people who are in the timber business, but homesteaders and others are coming here. They're facing these dense forests, which, you know, the plus side is you could cut these trees down and build a log cabin and get your homestead going. Uh, the downside is you were often left with what they used to call stump farms, which is just land littered with massive tree stumps. And if you want to, uh, you know, put cattle in there, uh, raise horses, uh, have a dairy, whatever, you've, you've got a problem. And so in early on, there are lots of accounts of the travails of the stump farmers in, in how do you dig these things out of the ground do you blow them up? Do you chop them up? Do you get a couple of oxen and try to haul them out of the ground? And these are trees that are hundreds, if not a thousand years old. And 
often very, very rooted in the ground. So in the 19th century, uh, particularly after the mid-19th century, you, you have people, you know, dealing with tree stumps is a, a big deal, uh, a travail that the settlers, many of the settlers go through, talk about, write about. I'm guessing you're going to tell us about some innovative ways that people used or dealt with tree stumps. And these are, some of them are very high. They're not a tree stump that you're going to trip over. They're, sometimes they're, what, 10 feet high? Oh, yeah. They could, some of these trees, uh, they would, wouldn't begin cutting it down until maybe 10, 12 feet in the air, in some cases even higher. I've read references up to 20 feet in the air before it's narrow enough that you can uh, cut it. And um, so you can imagine that a lot of wood is going to waste. A lot of wood is uh, difficult to remove or, um, you know, for a single person or even two people to, to uh, whittle down. And um, one of the intriguing things to me is um, you, you begin to see stories in the late 19th century about uh, people turning these things into something uh, useful. So hollowing out a cedar tree and using it as a, as a barn or using it as um, a shed, using it as a pen for goats. Um, the, uh, you know, if you can't blast it out of the ground, if it's too big to deal with, then is there some use you can make out of it? And um, in a weird way, in, you know, around 1900, some people turned them into what we would now call an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit. Some of these stumps were so big that either the, because of age and being somewhat hollow at the base, or you could go in and, and take a small hollow and carve it out, they began to use these for other purposes. Houses. So, houses, exactly. Stump houses. And that's really a thing that got me interested in it because I came across, this was years ago, I came across a photo of a family standing in front of a tree stump that had a window in it and a roof and a little chimney with smoke coming out. And it, it seemed to me like the perfect symbol for Mossback. I wrote a column called Mossback in Seattle Weekly, and the logo on the column was a little color hand-colored image of a stump house. Sounds very Hobbitville to me, perfect for the Northwest. Well, it is. It's funny because um, I think one of the things that people began to capture, particularly in the late 19th, early 20th century, was the scale. The scale of timber here was mind-blowing to people from elsewhere. And, of course, you know, we think of the California redwoods and the sequoias, but, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, in both British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, you had these, um, you know, forests of massive old <laughs> trees. And people began to take photographs of people posing with trees and tree stumps, and very popular were pictures of either the tree stumps being made into something like a home. Um, there was a tree stump post office over uh, in the Elwha country. 
Uh, people might use the cut stump. They they would be so big you could put horses up there. You could you could put a dance floor up there. Um, and so you see all these postcards and photographs of people posing with their stumps. On top of the stumps. On top of the stumps, front of the stumps, uh, in the uh, in the gashes in the stumps where they're, you know, cutting the tree down. There'll be a man lying in the cut <laughs> showing you how big it is. A six-foot man can lie on his side and stare at the camera cheekily. <laughs> it reminds me of the, the old postcards that would um, spoof, you know, the giant grapes, the giant cabbage, the giant fruits that came out of this garden of paradise. Yeah, exactly. You still see that, you know, uh, in, in roadside uh, shops. Uh, and it was always a way to sort of tout whatever was special about your region. So you'd see like a flat car with a giant potato on it, and you'd know, oh, I'm in Idaho, you know. And here in the early 1900s, that was a picture of a stump house. Massive cedar stumps often had hollow or soft interiors at the base. Why let them go to waste? Why not carve out some space and move in? How big, let's, let's get back to how big the uh, timber industry was and how it evolved, how it grew from the 1870s, I suppose, is when it was really starting to, to, to produce. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about the, trans, uh, the transformation from the frontier period where you have uh, individual settlers and families dealing with these great trees um, to the beginning of the, the logging business, the timber business. Um, the commercial generation of vast quantities of building material, primarily. Um, so, so in 1879, uh, 160 million board feet of timber was was shipped out of you know Washington. That was the number that amount that was produced here in Washington State from forests. Sounds um, like a lot. Ten years later, it's a billion board feet. So you go from 160 million to a billion. 1919, 5 billion. Yeah, 1929, uh, right before the Great Depression, 7.3 billion. So you can see that this thing is scaling up very quickly. And part of that is because the forests are beginning to be exploited on a large scale by industrial logging. And the one number that I found really striking was in 1910, 63% of those people bringing home a paycheck, uh, a wage earner in Washington, 63% were in the timber industry. That's a, that's a mammoth Yeah, so number. you think, that's... well, you know, we have people, uh, you know, how many people work at Boeing? How many people work at, uh, in the tech industry? 1910, it was the timber business. And this was before it was fully industrialized. This is, uh, you know, when people are still using saws and axes and, um, you know, maybe they have steam engines to help them haul the timber in and out. But uh, it's still kind of, you know, the, the lumber business uh, old school. Where's the documentation of this uh, visual? Who chronicled uh, the timber industry. How can people see the scale 
of that of that activity? Well, that's a great question because, um, luckily, and you could also say unfortunately, because we look at these images in a different way than they were looked at in in the nineteenth and early twentieth century. Um, but uh, Darius Kinsey was a photographer in um, who worked out of Cedra Woolley. His wife, Tabitha, was a full partner in his photography business. And Kinsey um, took amazing <laughs> photographs, um, you know, large glass plate photographs um, of the logging industry at that time. And, you know, what you see in those images are some of the pictures I'm talking about. Um, people posing with trees, loggers sitting like little elves on top of giant, giant logs that are, you know, as big as you've ever seen. Um, you know, he really documented the heyday of that industry. And these black and white photos, um, you know, are just kind of mind-blowing. They're, they're iconic. Um, and... Again, the scale of it, it gives you a sense of just, you know, how much, <laughs> how much wood we chop down, you know, how many, um, you know, how much forest was here that is not here anymore. The only place you, really that you can see these kinds of forests are in places like Olympic National Park, where there's some areas, the Ho and others, where these forests still exist in, in protected, you know, protected status. But it was anything goes back in that era. And these photographs, I mean, you see them used as these kind of iconic pictures of the Northwest frontier experience. Right. There is that famous photograph of some, some lumberjacks dancing or doing handstands on a... Oh, Yeah. That's the interesting thing. In those early days of photography, people, you know, they would have dances on stumps. Uh, but individuals, you know, would do handstands on stumps way in the air. It was kind of a place where you could show off, you know. And the, there are some great, yeah, photographs that kind of capture the, the sort of fun. And it reminds me of it reminds me of the way that people would pose in front of hunting trophies. Or fish. Or fish, or their e exactly. Ninety-pound Chinook salmon mm -hmm. that they caught. Exactly. It has this thing of kind of, you know, you're showing off the scale, but there's also this element of conquering the wilderness or conquering the the frontier. Um, you know, and people pose their children in front of these things and their 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 pets and that kind of thing. It was almost as if some of these stumps were this, you know kind of yeah, glorious trophy that everyone could gather around and you'd get these multiple messages in these photographs. It's really quite interesting and it's amazing how many of these photographs there are. I mean, you look in the collections at the University of Washington, the Kinsey Collection, which is uh, in, at the uh, museum in Whatcom County, uh, the WSU collections. If you just start looking, Washington State Historical Society, you start looking for stump pictures and people posing with stumps, uh, there are just zillions of them. And, uh, yeah, that kind of blows my mind. It was like a whole, 
a whole TikTok thing <laughs> before TikTok. <laughs> was there a particular stump house that became the iconic image of what you're talking about, the, the, the bountiful res forest resources of the Northwest? Yes, there is. So Kinsey took a picture of a stump house that was uh, near Arlington, and uh, it was a house that was um, kind of gussied up by the Lindstrom family, uh, Swedish immigrants who had moved west. They put a roof on their stump house. They installed a window, a stove. They used it as a temporary home until they could build a more permanent home. So they actually lived in this thing. And it's just this charming um, hobbit house. <laughs> and um, Kinsey's made a postcard out of it. And suddenly, you know, it was selling like crazy. Um, other people took pictures of it. And it became sort of the definitive giant potato on the flat car image of, you know, what the abundance of the Northwest forests were, uh, was here. So, um, you know, it, it became this kind of iconic, um, iconic image. We'll be right back after this message. Are you nerdy by nature? Do you get thirsty for thinkers? The Crosscut Ideas Festival is returning to Seattle April 29th to May 6th with fresh conversations to quench your curiosity. We'll explore issues and innovations in science, health, equity, and politics, like wokeness in America, spiritual prescriptions for mental health, the heavy hand of the Supreme Court, and the rise of AI. Join Michael Barbaro, Audie Cornish, Eric Holder, Deepak Chopra, Ibram X. Kendi, Andrew Yang, and more. Tickets at crosscut.com festival. I know you're a student uh, and, and a historian of World's Fairs and Expos. Did any of the stump houses make it to any any World's Fairs? Well, I came across a couple of things. One, one is that at the um, 1901 Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, there was uh, Washington had a pavilion there in which uh, the state was, um, you know, displaying its natural resources. So, of course, timber was part of that. So they brought um, what, what was a huge chunk uh, of a tree. And uh, it was, let's see, 10 feet high, 13 and a half feet in diameter, and it could hold 65 people. And they installed this as the exhibit. And they actually had this sort of office for that exhibit was in this stump. <laughs> and um, the whole idea was to promote our inexhaustible, in quotes, forests here. Because, you know, in 1900, they looked at these forests, they looked at these trees, and they just imagined they could cut it forever. It would never go away. And then in 1909... As far as I know, this wasn't actually built, but there was, I found a, a rendering in a, new, a newspaper of a stump house that was planned as a showcase at the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition in Seattle. It had a kitchen, porch, living room, fireplace, cedar flooring. 
<laughs> of course. And it was um, one of the things they kind of uh, advertised was it would have the fragrance of pioneer days. <laughs> and but this was this was like a nice, nice rustic way to uh, to put it. This thing was designed as kind of like an you know an upper class stup house, and I had never heard about this when I came across this uh, full page, you know, picture and article about what was planned, and um, you know when it was it was true at these various expositions of that period in Seattle and Portland. They built these huge pavilions to showcase the natural resources out of logs that still had the bark on, and and uh, the, but but they were built almost like cathedrals, you know, with these you know multi stories high and vaulted ceilings, and so essentially they were they were kind of like stump houses except they were more like you know stump parthenons. <laughs> And um, giant and, stump lodges. Yes, exactly. And and in fact, if you ever want to see one, there's one at East Glacier. It wasn't a pavilion, but it was designed by a guy who did a, the pavilion in Portland, I believe. And it's uh, the lodge at East Glacier, and they have bark on pillars, you know, and it and it really is cathedral like. It really is like you're in you know the Milan Cathedral or something, except it's timber. They had to build special train cars to get the lumber out to Glacier National Park in order to build this lodge. Are there any stump houses around now, or any anything that's been um, uh, refurbished, re reconstructed, but? But are the remains of a true stump house? Yeah. Well, so the Edgecombe house eventually was dismantled, and then it kind of rotted away, as I understand it. Eventually, you know, uh, nobody put it back together, and and it deteriorated. There's a there is a uh, stump house at the museum in Arlington that's outdoors, obviously next to the museum, that was at one location and moved there. I think. I don't think you can go into it, but um, it's there. Um, and then you see miniature stump houses, uh, you know, the kind of place where in Forks um, I've run into um, a stump house. There might be more than one. Um, that It's more than, more than a telephone booth, you know, and, and might have some, something on logging exhibit or whatnot in there. But um, so you definitely see these kind of small versions, which are still bigger than you know, anything that you would do today. Um, and uh, the Edmonds Museum did an exhibit on stump houses, and they recreated one for that exhibit. A few This was a few years ago. So, you know, there's still kind of vestigial ones out there. You know, and, and of course, the one thing that hasn't gone away is this idea of recreating that, kind of intimate habitation in the forests. Um, of course, now we can do them with, you know, tree houses or miniature lodges or, you know, that kind of thing. But there is something about that, you know, desire for that, that little cabin in the woods uh, that is connected, I think, to the appeal that these things had. I always had, since I was a boy, fantasies about tree houses. Uh, tree houses that 
could be in some of these giant trees that, you know, could be as elaborate as you and large as you wanted them to be. Right. The Swiss family Robinson exactly. uh, place at Disneyland, I remember, was like a big deal when I was young. You know, it was like, well, who wouldn't want to live like that? I was a youngster in the 50s, early 60s, and my family did a lot of hiking. And not only would we see on our travels trucks carrying huge logs, something you don't see today at all. And I'm struck by that every time I see a logging truck go by any place, that the the diameter of the trees are just not what they were. Um, but I'm also struck by the fact that it's very rare for somebody to be able to see the kind of trees that used to exist, the very enormous old trees. Where can people go see those? Well, you pretty much have to go to a national park. I mean, Mount Rainier National Park has, um, you know, groves of old growth trees that um, you can walk on a boardwalk to. Um, the oldest or not the oldest, but the largest um, cedar tree, I think, in Washington is near Kalaylock on the coast. And there's a tra- a, you get a road that you can drive down and you can get to this tree. Um, it's, uh, it's called the Duncan uh, Cedar, 170 feet tall, 20 feet in diameter. So this gives you a sense of scale. The tree is, much of it's dead, but it's still parts of it are still living up up top, and um, it's estimated to be about a thousand years old. So it's a it's a, there's um, some parks in uh, Vancouver Island have trees of equivalent size. Um, so you know there definitely are um, preserves, you know, in protected territory. It's interesting what you say. You know, because I remember that, too, as a kid seeing it's all that the sort of the sometimes a great notion, the Ken Kesey novel era. You still get some whiffs of that down on the Columbia River out toward Astoria, even if even if the forests aren't uh, of the scale. But I remember seeing logging trucks in Seattle driving on I-5 in the 60s and 70s with massive old growth logs on them. And of course, back then, you know, as people were becoming more environmentally conscious and, you know, beginning to understand that we, the forests were exhaustible, not inexhaustible. Um, And, uh, but you don't see that anymore. I mean, it's rare. People can take big trees like that and do off of private land primarily. Um, But with the, you know, the advent of the environmental movement made it a lot more difficult to cut, endlessly cut timber wherever you wanted to, whenever you wanted, especially on public land, because, um, you know, we were trying to protect ecosystems. We were trying to protect endangered species like the spotted owl. So things have changed quite a bit, you know, really since the 90s. What's, what is the largest tree that remains in in the metro Seattle area. Do you know? I do not. 
I do not know. Um, there, as far as I know, there's old growth in three public parks still. So there's old growth in Seward Park, which was partially cut, but not entirely cut. And those go back, you know, four or 500 years, some of them. Uh, there's old growth in Schmitz Park in West Seattle. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's some old growth in Carkeek Park. Mm -hmm. Some of those, the last of the old growth that was taken out of Seattle parks was during World War II, where they did some selective timber cutting because of the war and the war effort. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly know in Seward Park, um, they, these trees are, are revered. Some of them have been subject to vandalism in recent years. Um, there's one tree in particular, which is in a very public place that was, had a plaque near it. And they took the plaque down because people wanted to, you know, damage the tree. Um, Can't imagine. So, mm. yeah. But there are also, you know, places where people have made little altars to some of these trees, you know, were sort of divided into the tree worshipers and the, <laughs> the tree vandals still. Um, but we're one of the few cities where there's old growth within the city. And most of it just survived pretty much by accident. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.